I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. This is the podcast that explores how DNA is changing our lives and the world around us. So what does it take to overcome addiction? America is sick. Americans are dying. Towns are being destroyed. Economies are crippled all by addiction. And the numbers are devastating. 142 people a day die of drug overdoses, and they're killing more people than car crashes and gun homicides combined. Prescription opioids and heroin are the prime contributors to these stats. Once hooked on prescription painkillers, many people turn to heroin, which is often cut with more lethal drugs because it's cheaper and easier than getting another refill. Heroin use in the U.S. has more than doubled, and heroin deaths have more than quadrupled in just the past decade. These statistics are beyond alarming, and they're leaving us wondering, what is it going to take to beat this addiction epidemic? In part one of this episode, I sit down with two people who are actively using their experience, their influence, and their voices to help answer that question. Nikki Six, founding member and bassist of the world-renowned rock band Motley Crue and 6AM, three-time New York Times best-selling author, public speaker, philanthropist, photographer, and addiction recovery advocate. There was a hole inside me that wasn't my fault, but later would become my responsibility. And Dr. Adi Jaffe, a world-renowned mental health expert, lecturer at UCLA, addiction specialist, and author of The Abstinence Myth. Genetically, there are actually a few dozen markers that are important when it comes to us understanding whether somebody is more or less likely to become an addict. After my conversation with Nikki and Adi, I was left wondering, is there a way to identify addictive or impulsive behaviors earlier, before people succumb to addictions? Listen in to part two of this episode, where doctors Abraham Palmer and Sandra Sanchez-Roger of the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry share their latest research. They discovered a genetic signature that correlates a person's ability to delay gratification with reduced chances of addictive behavior, meaning those that place more value on instant gratification over delayed gratification are more likely to experience addictive behaviors. Not everybody's dealt the same deck of cards. Not everybody goes into these situations with the same strengths and weaknesses. Some people are very vulnerable to these substances which are prevalent in our society, and that shouldn't be seen as a personal weakness that shouldn't be seen as something that they are blamed for. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be fun. And this is going to be very real. Let's begin with Nikki and Adi. You both have some shared experiences. You've both landed in some beautiful places. Nikki, I want to start in the beginning with you. What was your childhood and family life like, and how can you anchor that story of your own addiction into those experiences? I was born in San Jose, California. My father was the first in our family to be born in America. His parents, my grandparents, were immigrants from Italy. My mom met my dad. She was 18. He was about 42 years old. I was two years old when my sister Lisa was born with Down syndrome. They were told uh, to not take her from the hospital, that she wouldn't live uh, six days, much less six weeks or six months. My dad was uh, very passionate about bringing her home, and they, they couldn't take care of her. It was 1960. They didn't have the ability, and they didn't have the finances. Uh, my dad was like a construction worker. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. So they, my sister went to a home 
And I was told that I was very upset about mm-hmm. that. I was very excited. I was going to have a sister. I was very upset. It was my first kind of thing I can connect to what, what might be an abandonment for me. My dad left right after that. So I was about three. And then my mom left right after that. And I went to my grandparents. And I didn't know that I had been basically abandoned until I hit, you know, maybe my teens. I started to have uh, a lot of anger towards my mom and my dad. And everybody else has a mom and a dad. Even if they were divorced, I'm living in Idaho with my grandparents. We're traveling every six months. I become a very shy kid because I was always the new kid in school. I didn't have any roots. I didn't know who my family was. And I didn't know until I was a little bit older. I actually didn't even know who I was. Mm-hmm. And the, the one thing that I had was music. I go back in time and I remember that was the thing. I think music actually saved my life. I think without music, I might have ended my life early through either drugs, alcohol, or some other other way. So I, I always look at music as like the thing that saved my life. That's a, that's a deep story. And it's a kind of actually amazing so many parallels, but you hear, and I can see all the work you've done by this moment to recognize all those old patterns, right? Because yeah. it's really interesting how different and yet how similar our stories are. My family stayed together all the way through. My dad died of cancer about 10 years ago, still married to my mom. Mm -hmm. But a lot of tumultuous elements of the relationship, they almost separated multiple times, you know, place being thrown in the house and and yelling and shouting in a very emotionally withdrawn family. We moved to the States and we moved around and I I was a new kid in school and I was an immigrant and I needed ways to fit in. And so- Which I can totally relate to. Yeah, at around the same age. Well, I mean, for me, it was 14. So maybe a little bit later than than the moving around started for Mm -hmm. you. And I was always really socially anxious until the first time somebody handed me a bottle of vodka at a sleepaway camp. I knew drinking was bad, but the only reason I drank it at first was because I wasn't going to be the weird kid to say no. Right. And I had a few sips, and I remember it burning down my throat and just being disgusting, but I'm not going to be the one throwing up this stuff either because all the kids are going to make fun of me. And then 15 minutes later, it hit, and I was good. Like For the first time in as long as I can remember – I didn't care what other people thought of me. I didn't feel awkward. I could talk to girls. All these things that I'd wanted to figure out. But like you said, I didn't, I didn't have a word for it. I didn't have a name for it. I didn't recognize yeah. that this was going on. And now I found a solution. And I immediately after that sleepaway camp, I was drinking every weekend at mm-hmm. 14. And um, it gave me a group of people with whom when I drank at least, because I still d- didn't feel like I belonged if I wasn't drinking. But when I drank, I felt okay. And then weed came around the same way. Everything came the same way because as long as I could belong, everything supposedly in my head would be okay. But then that took me down some pretty dangerous routes. Sure. You know, within five to 10 years, it it developed quickly because the first drive, the first impetus was just to be all right and to just belong. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's really, really similar. I'm sure everybody listening could totally understand (laughs) why you would have that coming from that background. It was the same for me. Actually, my earliest memory was... We, I think we were living in Lake Tahoe and there were these kids on the playground and one kid had a little envelope and he had some seeds, which then I, you know, oh, like, like a gardener. That's, that's it was, a he, he was actually, they were um, sunflower thumb. seeds. Yeah. He said it was, you know, it was pot. And I was like, I don't really even know what that is. I mean, that I was very young. I found out and I fit in. Yeah. And all of a sudden I wasn't the new kid in school. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Exactly. There was a hole inside me that wasn't my fault, 
but later would become my responsibility. There's always that thread back to either a single experience for people who experience some severe trauma in a moment, yeah. but typically it's not one experience. It's, it's an accumulation of experience. And almost an entire existence yeah. that is centered on not fitting in, feeling less than, being outwardly mocked. One of my clients today was telling her mom just regularly called her Miss Piggy. Like, I don't know how you develop without having struggles and ideas about what's going on with your weight when that's the way that people are supposed to love you and support you, relate to you. As humans, we want to be comfortable. We, we need for that to happen, and we're supposed to get it from our socialization. And if I'm not going to get it from the group of people that I was born into, I'm going to find it somewhere else. Sure, yeah. We're going to talk about the biological piece of this a lot here today as well. But some people, I'm one of those people, I don't know if you are, but I'm, I have a proclivity to be experimental and try stuff out and be a little bit more maybe um, inquisitive inquisitive, impulsive, some of these other things and some of the people I was born around. And so when these things would show up, I was pretty quick to jump on them and not really do a lot of forethought and sit around and go, well, I've heard this is bad. These kids want me to fit in. What do I do? I just, I jump on it. It's also hard when the people that are saying it's bad are actually not treating you good. So now you have some guy that's got a thing of something and even though you don't really know him, it's like, oh, he's he's cool. Yeah. Those guys were always cool to me. Yeah. Like the guy that had the weed, the guy that, you know, they, they had a, a secret party at someone's. I was like, wow, that's so much cooler than my existence. Yeah. My existence is my mom ignored me. My dad mm. ignored me. Kind of a, a thing I think about and curious what you think about this. Do they know? Like, I don't think my mom knew what she was doing. I don't I don't don't know the pressure my dad had being 30 years older than my mom in like the 60s and he'd left and was my mom crazy? I've heard she was. I never really knew her. There's a child with down syndrome, there's financial he just he left. Did my mom know? Did they know shipping me off? And and even even it's like almost maybe not fair that I say shipping me off. Like I was like a bottle of water. Yeah. Right. Maybe they just didn't have any other tools. At and maybe the they time. thought they were saving you. Maybe. What you've both done a beautiful job of establishing is the hole that addiction tries to fill. A sense of lack of community, of loneliness, of abandonment, of belonging that you might not get from the people around you. So Dr. Jaffe, how do we scientifically understand what addiction actually is? Sure. So I, I want to be... Really clear from the outset, while a lot of people listening might think that this is a completely agreed upon idea, Mm. it's not. And there's a lot of debate among scientists and the industry in general about what addiction is. And everybody's heard the addiction disease model, for instance. That's one of the predominant models in the United States, for instance. Addiction absolutely has both biological and environmental and psychological components. Everybody will acknowledge that. The question, and I talk about this a lot, there's a whole chapter in the abstinence myth literally dedicated to this part, is for about 100 years now, we've been fighting about who rules that kingdom, right? Like, is it more biology or more psychology or is it all the environment? I think that's a somewhat uniquely American thing that we kind of want to know who won out, like who beat who? who? Did biology beat psychology? And I think the reason I like this conversation here is I don't think there's really a winner I think it becomes individually determined by each person's experience. So addiction is literally, in a clinical sense, a name we have given. We don't use it in in, in clinical terms anymore. Alcohol use disorder, for instance, is the name for what alcoholism is. But an alcohol use disorder can have a 
you know, a low level, a moderate level, or a severe level. And what it is is a collection of symptoms. It's a, a set of things that show up together. Drinking more than you want to, more frequently than you want to, not being able to stop with yourself when you say that you would, um, having consequences, social, relational, uh, employment-based consequences. Health. That- health that amass and that you still cannot correct your behavior based on, right? Right. And so the idea of an addiction is engaging in a behavior or or substance use of some sort that is negatively impacting your life in a multitude of ways. Normally actually includes cravings within it somewhere where even when you're not using, you are looking for and wanting the thing. And that it shows up for a long enough period of time with consequences to amass and the correction doesn't end up Resulting. That's really as broad of a definition as you can have for addiction. And I include four criteria in the book. So spiritual, psychological, environmental, and biological. And for me, spiritual is anything that connects you to something bigger. Right. right? Like my purpose now is to help other people struggling with this. That's a big enough spiritual thing for me, mm-hmm. the helping of other humans. From the biological point of view, I think this is a really important thing to talk about because there's no doubt that biology plays a part. I mean, I know for you, Nikki, a big part of your story was heroin. Yeah, that's you talk about, but it was other stuff yeah. too. You know? But you talk, like, what do I get my hands on? Yeah, mm. right. But you say something about heroin that I used to say about meth, which was I used everything until I found that, and yes. when I found that, yeah. I was good. I did. I stopped drinking so when I found meth. Heroin one for you in, yeah. That, yeah. in that mix. Meth one. You were doing music. You had another job. I became a drug dealer. Yeah, and I've read your story, and it's it's fascinating. Everything and- in my life was drugs. Yeah, but everything, you were headed in one way, and that just took your knees out from underneath you. Do you feel that there is an invisible line? Let's just use alcohol as an example. The guy gives you some vodka. You feel like you fit in. You're getting some girls, like, thinking you're cute. You got a new bicycle, going to some parties. You're drinking more. You throw up a couple times. You throw up, you know, on your new bicycle. There's signs but you keep going, and then one day, I crossed a line. Yeah. Do you remember when that was? Yeah, or do you know I kind of don't, and yeah. I've mm-hmm. I've always wanted to ask somebody else. So I think this do is you an think awesome there's question. an invisible line? I don't. I don't think there really is. And okay. from a biological standpoint, things absolutely happen, right? NIDA, National Institute on Drug Addiction, in one of their papers a while back, this is about 12, 15 years ago, talked about essentially a switch being thrown, which is a question you're asking biologically right. in the brain. The thing is, we've never found that switch. And it's not only that we've never found it, but the story typically for people progresses along a a continuum, right? Things continue to get worse. Mm -hmm. And that line is sometimes perceived in hindsight. So when you get to the end of the story, you can look back and say, well, that's when things change. Like meth use. I had no problem admitting that I was addicted to meth when I was addicted to it. I didn't call myself an addict because I didn't understand that people like for you to take on to have the that whole your problem. Identity. Yeah, like that yeah. wasn't yeah. a thing for me. I, I told all my friends, I'm like, I'm addicted to meth. I would wake up every day and just use meth after I just fell asleep because there was no reason for me to do it other than the fact that it had now served this role in my life. So biologically, a whole slew of things happened. For heroin, for instance, right? We know that one of the main reasons why after continued heroin use, people have a hard time stopping, your body regulates so much to the influx of opioids that all these normal processes that were never a problem for you, like eating and digesting food, just feeling comfortable in your skin, literally, so you're not crawling with pain everywhere. Right. All those things have now changed because of the biology of the drug. And when you take the drug away, you experience severe pain, diarrhea, like these things happen to your body. Your body doesn't make it anymore, right? Yeah. And you yeah. and so this pain reliever that your body used to make naturally for itself, your body has now dysregulated how it works and it has changed. That is ab- an absolutely biological right. fact of what happens to a heroin addict. Now, 
the fact that that happens, we used to think is the only reason why people got addicted to heroin because they couldn't stop the heroin use afterwards. But we know, and I, I'm wondering about your experience in the same thing mm-hmm. is at some point you kicked it. So at some point, even that was not enough to keep you from the use. Well, what was the difference? To me, the difference becomes the psychological components, the environmental components, and the spiritual components. Yeah. Something changed about those other ones that allowed you to push through Mm -hmm. the the biological piece. Because the biological piece will never go away. It will always be there. Mm -hmm. What to me is interesting and why I wrote the book about the abstinence myth is people pretend like recovery, like getting over addiction. Mm -hmm. We just kind of define, I hope that was good enough for you, define what addiction is. It is, but I want to jump in with, because you talk about sort of overcoming the biology, which for this show comes back to genetics. Yeah. And predetermination or predisposition or heredity or inheritance of a proclivity (laughs) to have an addictive personality or an addictive physiology. So where are genetics in the story of what addiction is? Sure. As an umbrella to all this, I want to make sure that we stay connected to the idea that while biology absolutely matters, Mm -hmm. there is no known period point blank, predetermined genetic makeup, specific combination of alleles and genes that creates an addict or an alcoholic. That does not exist. When people talk about an alcoholic personality or an addictive personality, they're talking about the more complex thing that we were talking about before, right? Mm -hmm. Genetically, there are actually a few dozen markers that are important when it comes to us understanding whether somebody is more or less likely to become an addict. But the thing is, they run the gamut from how your liver processes the drugs, right? So for instance, we know that there's a, an allele called ALDH22, which has to do with a specific enzyme in your liver that helps break down one of the byproducts of alcohol, aldehyde. If you can't break down aldehyde and, you know, formaldehyde, right? Everybody knows the name of that chemical. Aldehyde is toxic to your body. And if you know anybody who drinks, this happens a lot in Asian populations, drinks a tiny amount and gets really flush and sweaty, their body can't process alcohol. There's a chemical reason for that. And it's because an enzyme in your liver doesn't exist to break down this byproduct, which means that as soon as you start drinking, your body goes into a toxicity sort of state. Mm, like detecting rest- poison, essentially. Well, yeah. not even just detecting it, just being flooded with aldehyde. Right. And so you right. can't process uh, the, the chemical appropriately. Those people don't drink a lot. So that has to do with the biological predetermination. Right. Those crowds they have literally a have an allergic reaction literally to it when they drink it, which was the opposite of us. Yes. But that's a kind of a good thing. Yeah. So for, in for, a sense. Well, yeah. so here's the interesting thing, right? This is what's interesting. Biologically, they're less likely to use alcohol, mm-hmm. but that doesn't remove their ability to become addicted because mm-hmm. they'll find something else to fill the gap. Right. And biologically, we end up chasing, well, what is the thing that's impacting? So some, some of this is about literally how your liver or your gut eliminates or processes the substance. Okay. So that's one thing. Okay. And we have a lot of different variations that's very interesting. genetically. The next piece is then what happens once it's in your bloodstream in terms of what receptors is it able to connect to? What systems in your body does this chemical attach to? There's a reason why the drugs we use are the drugs we use, right? THC, Uh, attaches to all these molecules all over. I mean, not just your brain, your gut, all over your body. Mm -hmm. There are THC um, receptors. Opioids, the same thing all over your body. There are molecules that attach to one another. And so the variance, because we don't all have the exact same receptors, whether your receptor is more active or less active will mean that when the drug enters your system, you'll have more of a reaction or less of a reaction. Weirdly, people actually have the, the opposite notion of how this happens. People who struggle with alcohol primarily have a reduced sensitivity to alcohol, not a heightened sensitivity to alcohol. What does that mean? That means that they drink more 
in order to get the same effect than other people around them. So they become heavier drinkers from the beginning. That mm. starts setting up all those other biological processes. And there's some people that I've experienced in my life that would drink, you know, morning, noon, night, pass out. You're like, that guy's not getting out of bed for three days. Yeah. He's going to have the worst hangover up at seven o'clock in the morning, yeah. in the gym, goes to lunch, has a drink, and does it again. How does that happen? So tolerance is an amazing thing. When I drank, I get two-day hangovers. In yeah. the end of my drinking sure. career, I, I would, it would I like kill you call me. it a career. It was a career. You're like clocking I into drinking. I mean, clocking you, in. you know, you move up in the chain. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, heroin use, right? If we just go to that. When people start using heroin, a small amount delivers a huge bang and creates a massive effect. I mean, once you get out over the nausea part, right? Sure. Like you have to get over that. Yeah. Uh, once you get over that, then yeah. it gives you this really big payoff in terms of feeling euphoric and, yeah. and settled in a way that people have never felt before. You start using more and you need more and more drug, right? That's right. kind of the, the standard. Right. And not only that, but then sometimes you need just a little bit. Like, did you ever have those times where, I'm sure you did one, you needed to use not a lot, like not enough to get high, but enough to be able to function. To not be sick. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, you find this middle ground. So that guy you're talking about, his body is so tolerant of alcohol that he actually needs it for all his systems to operate normally based on what the new norm is for his body. Mm -hmm. And here we're having a biological conversation about addiction, right? But the issue is, like we said before, if you have these five genes and uh, you come from this cultural background, like your, your parents are from this country or this area of the world, mm -hmm. and you were born this weight, you'll become an alcoholic. That right. marker doesn't exist, especially because we now know so much more about genetics than we used to with the concept of epigenetics. So for instance, let's say that you came with the most heavily weighted biological predetermination for addiction, right? Let's say all the genes were lined up to give you the highest risk of becoming a drug addict. Mm -hmm. If you are born in a relatively stress-free environment and are well-fed and nourished and taken care of, there are protective epigenetic systems in your body that can manage and essentially control some of that negative impact of your blueprint. Right. So in that case, it could be a social thing that could change that, could totally social, flip, flip you on your head. You a could, trauma, you get beaten, you get raped. Right. You could be predetermined Go to prison. and prison. live in a, you know, in the Himalayas and, you know, meditate every day and have this beautiful, peaceful life. And you go down into the city and something traumatic happens and it, it triggers a lot of stuff. And then you have your first experience. Yeah, there's so much in that story, actually, right? Because here's what you're talking about. You're talking about a person who's predetermined, but living in an environment and a psychological state of being that does not push you towards addictive behavior. And there he's safe with all the biological predetermination, mm -hmm. safe. And do they know? Do they feel it? Do they feel out of whack or it's just in, it's in the genes, so, so to speak? We're getting into really good stuff because the idea for me is your biology is what I call your machine. Mm -hmm. It absolutely determines who you are. I always equate this always to cars, right? Like if you dr have driven multiple it's funny different- funny I do that too. Yeah. If yeah. you, all, if you drive different body. cars, then they act differently. They have a different- personality mm -hmm. to them from torque to speed to gas mileage, all that stuff. Sure. But it's not like a Ferrari feels awkward because it's got high, low end torque. That's just, that's the way it is, right? Whereas a Prius is kind of steady across its power line and is really efficient in terms of use of gasoline. So I call the biology, the thing that presets your, your system, 
Mm-hmm. What are you primed for? Mm-hmm. Like if you're primed for inquisitiveness or sensation seeking is kind of the way we talk about it or impulsivity, that's actually not necessarily a bad thing long term. You're more likely to be entrepreneurial. You're more likely to try other things that people are afraid of yeah. that can be exciting and really successful. There's not a bad element to that. Once we get into negative behaviors like problematic drug use, et cetera, sure. then you cross over. So we're in an age where even children are being encouraged to pursue your passion. Mm. On our social media, the people who are winning and succeeding saying, you got to know your passion, man. You got to pursue that thing you love. And Nikki, you have pursued your passion, right. you know, musically, creatively, yeah. photographically, and we have benefited from that passion. Right. And, and same with you, Dr. Jeff. You have this passion for helping other people. You've written books. You got podcasts. Like, but where do you think about the line, the threshold between the positive impact of pursuing your passion Versus the destructive impact of pursuing a passion for meth or but just alcohol. Listen or to the passion, right? Nikki, you talked about music was one of those tools. I think drugs or addictive behaviors are just a tool. That's all they are in the beginning. You found music, and that was one of the things that allowed you to organize, control, be okay in the chaos that was your life early on. Yeah. And I never thought of it quite like that, but I remember being with my mom, living in Los Angeles. Driving in this car, I can still see the dashboard. Mm. I don't know where we were, but there was a park and there was a lake. Because it could have been like Balboa Park or oh, something. I love how connected you are to this memory. And I remember hearing Petulia Clark's song, Downtown. And the lyrics are really colorful. Mm. And they tell this story about, you know, downtown and what, you know, sunshine. And, all. and I remember that moment like yesterday. Oh. and. That was the moment I fell in love with music. And what you just said is interesting because it could have been at that moment that I was like, all this chaos is happening, but this. This I can, this, this, yeah. this, this is, brings me peace. Brings me peace. So I don't think we can separate the two, right? Without mm-hmm. the pain that you would experience, the music wouldn't have had that power. Yeah, maybe not. And for me, I can tell you with 100% certainty, I was a punk growing up, like at 13, 14 years old. There was no purpose to my life. Yeah. The purpose came because I came through this drug use nightmare, right? That when I woke from, I had a million-dollar bail, $750,000 bail. My parents found out I was a drug dealer when I was pretending I was a musician. Like My life had devolved. Yeah. It yeah. had imploded. And when I finally dug my way out of that three or four years later and I ended up back in school by necessity because I could not get a job because I had nine felonies on my record – when that happened is when I went, I now have my purpose. And yeah. if I didn't have that pain, I wouldn't have had the purpose. So I don't think we can separate the two so much. Yeah. I mean, if you listen to Gary Vee or any of the people really pushing people towards purpose, it's the same thing, right? Get, you get driven into the ground and out of that pain, you discover the thing that rescues you from it. Yeah. The problem for me was that nobody along the way, and this is what I try to do for people now, nobody along the way paused and said, I see you in pain. Nobody along the way came and said, what can I do to help relieve that for you? But was that because of some of the people in your environment? In my environment, the first time I was introduced to heroin, I actually don't want to even say who it was because Mm. it's, you know, they're actually not here anymore because of Mm. drugs, but there was other people. They said, hey, do you want to try some some junk? And I said, yeah. Mm. And I'll tell you why I said yeah. Because these guys that I thought were so cool, like Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls and Keith Richards and all these guys that were shooting dope were so cool. And that 
that was my goal. Yeah. That was my goal. And I did it. And I literally wanted to become a junkie. That was, I remember when I got clean, I was like, how sick that was. Why did I not go, oh, I'll try it. I was like, not only will I try it, this is who I am. Yeah. And because it gave me something, it gave me a connection to something that was my goal, was to be, you know, a successful musician, an outlaw rock and roller, to to live life the way I wanted, to write the lyrics the way I want to write. I'm going to tell my story. Mm. I'm going to live the bohemian life. And I died. (laughs) As did the guys that were in that room. Mm. They're all dead. But you came back. I came back. And you've outlined the amount of work it took to do that, right? So Yeah. And it, but it gave me purpose. And last night I was laying downstairs with my wife. We were talking about doing the show and I was very excited about it. And uh, she said, you know, I believe that you were spared because this is your mission. Your mission is not to be Keith Richards Jr. Yeah. Yeah. I like rock and roll. I like it really loud and <laughs> snotty. That's not my that's not my purpose. Right. My only purpose. You know, it's to be a father. It's to be an advocate for sobriety. It's to help the next kid that comes up and someone says, Hey man, you want to try junk? And he goes, That guy Nikki Six is pretty cool. He's still doing it. He's a photographer, he's an artist, he's still making music, musicals, movies, and he's sober. Yeah. Maybe that is my purpose. I think that's one of the reasons for me why we have to speak out. For instance, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you flat out because I want to be clear about this. I'm not fully sober. I kick drugs. It's been 18 years since I used meth. I drink socially now. Part of the reason I talk about this is that purpose you just connected to is so important, in my opinion, to find what every moment is about for you, right? I don't know how you feel about this, but when I get one of those messages, whether it's Instagram or Facebook from somebody who read the book, saw my story, saw one of my talks, and they say, you fi- you finally spoke to me in a way that nobody had before, and I'm going to, whatever the next thing is they're about to do to change their life for the better, yeah. it's the biggest gift you could it's, ever get. It's, it's amazing. What are the ways that you found your way back? And, and how are we making mistakes Mm. and what we expect from people. I I think people put a lot of weight on themselves. Mm -hmm. I know we put a lot of weight on people. Yeah, You go cold turkey, you do the specific program or it doesn't count, you're weak Mm -hmm. because you've succumbed to this temptation repeatedly. I suspect all of that is false (laughs) and that there are other ways out, but you've both been through it. You're experts in different ways. Mm -hmm. What have you seen that works to bring people back from that? Nikki, you talked when I gave you the bracelet, you yeah. talked about this experience you had after a relapse. Yeah. Do you mind just talking about that right now? Yeah, I've been sober nine, almost nine years, maybe a little under that. I decided to uh, try it on, but not just to try it on. I had a good excuse. I had a crazy relationship I was in. I was in a band that was crazy. I had drifted far enough away that I couldn't really remember what it was like to have my skin feel like sandpaper. I feel like my guts were like hanging out of my mouth as I was going through heroin withdrawal, you know? When you're throwing up and you have diarrhea at the same time, there's only one toilet. It's not pretty. It's not a glamorous rock star, living the life, designer clothes, driving a Ferrari. It's it's disgusting. It's the bottom and you literally do want to die. 
and I forgot. I, I'll be honest, I forgot for a second. Yeah. And I had some good excuses in my alcoholic brain. And so I tried it on. Tried a couple beers. Someone had a little bump. Cheated on my wife. My whole life went in the toilet. Mm. And I literally put myself into rehab before I got like addicted again, before I had done any more damage. I'd already done enough damage and a short week mm. or so. And I remember being in the uh, desert at this rehab and I kept waking up at four o'clock in the morning for some reason, <sighs> every morning. And I was like, okay, I get it. You want to <laughs> talk to me. So you weren't supposed to leave the room till six o'clock in the morning. And it was kind of weird for me because I was dorming with like eight other guys. And they're like, I'm like, why am I, I went from a mansion to this run down rehab in a desert with eight other guys in there. I just was like, so I, I, I went out and I went for a walk in the desert. And as the sun was coming up, I hit my knees and I said, I will never use again. If you can just help me see mm. the way and I will, I will, I will help other people. I've had people say, yeah, that's a great story. It is a great story because it worked. I don't know if there was a spiritual intervention. I I don't know what it was, but it was action, right, and determination and a program. And there was many people around me, so I had to make a choice. But to answer your question about the slip and about shame and about uh, guilt and uh, stigmas, on the last 6 a.m. album, we wrote a song called Maybe It's Time. And it it is about that moment when you are like, you know, maybe it's time. Like, you know, I, I put maybe it's time because, it, you know, it gives a little leeway. Little room. It yeah. should have literally been called It Is Time, but it didn't <laughs> sing right. Uh, like he's, and, he's editing his album right now. Right here. Yeah. And, but previous to that, I wrote a song called Accidents Can Happen, right. which was about falling off the wagon. And it, it's really just one day. It is a mistake. It's an accident. And accidents can happen, inspiring people that have fallen off the wagon to go again, go back at it. You know, sometimes we don't get it the first time with diets. We don't get it the first time if you have a sex addiction. We can't get it the first time if you're an overspender, you're living beyond your means. It takes us time. Who does get it the first Who time? Who does get at it anything, the first time? right? But how I mean, horrible if you mess up. Right. And everybody points at you exactly. and says, What's wrong with you? And you say, You're right. What is wrong with me? And you go back to your past And that's behavior. what started it in the first place in some sense. Right, exactly. Feeling like something was wrong exactly. with you. Feeling well, like you left fit out, in. feeling like you exactly. don't fit in. Exactly. Yeah, like you right don't way. fit. Which is the problem. And so you were asking, and I, I wanted to hear that story because I think it's so important, A, for people to hear that you can be okay. I mean, we can use whatever marker you want for okay. And I think we should broaden that definition a little bit than mm-hmm. just sobriety. Mm-hmm. But you can be okay for nine years, screw up royally, and come back. Now, there are a couple of things that happen because of, in my opinion, some of the misinformed focus we put on only how many days in a row of sobriety do you have. Because we put so much focus on that thing and not on anything else, you go from having nine years to zero days. And in everybody's eyes, you've now become abject failure because, yeah, you used to have 2,000 some days, but now you're back at zero. So the person who came in last week and it's their first time getting any help is now better than you somehow based Mm -hmm. on this measurement. 
And as you just pointed out, it's really a bad thing. I've seen it. I've seen it multiple times. And and not only that, but you know, when I hear the story that you tell, you weren't back to zero in that moment. You checked yourself into treatment. First of all, that is not at all the same guy that had first been struggling. That's number one. Secondly, when you were waking up at four o'clock in the morning, you weren't looking for self-destructive anything anymore. You were trying to solve a problem. And I don't know, we talked, you talked about it a tiny bit, but it sounds like there were a lot of problems that were amassing. And because you were sober, it felt like what a lot of people feel like is, well, I'm sober, so everything must be good, but I'm in the wrong relationship. I'm in the wrong this. I'm in the wrong that. I'm took on a job I shouldn't take. Life starts sucking because we're not measuring success by any other means other than the sobriety. And now you don't have a buffer. Yeah. There's no tool. So in buffer, so as soon as you find that buffer again, those problems are still there. Mm -hmm. I had not dealt with my mom. I had not dealt with my dad. I had not dealt with the traveling and the moving and feeling weird. I remember when I was in Idaho and I was like growing my hair long and I was into and I remember these kids started, you know, calling me calling me gay. Yeah. And I remember that I was so young I never heard the the f- word. Yeah. And I was like what I literally went to the library and looked it up. Later, my mom asked me if I was a transvestite. I went to school. I go, what is that? Because I had purple fingernail polish. I I was emulating David Bowie. I was like writing me. I was an artist. But those like things, like as I got older, like I never, I wasn't gay. If I was, I would have embraced it. Uh, but it was like lots of messaging, abandonment, travel. Who are you? Other, Why do you look other like than that? Different. You're different. Yeah. And then, and then I was sober, but a lot of that was still in my universe. Mm-hmm. So, so my whole point about recovery is we have to really broaden how we measure success. One of the tools that I give everybody I work with is this wheel of life. I changed a little bit. There's one you can find online. And if anybody goes to, by the way, to uh, ignited.com, you can download a free one just right now. And it's got 10 areas of life. Do an assessment. Figure out how you're doing. How are your family relationships? How's your personal growth? How's your financial situation? What's your living environment like? How's your purpose? How are you contributing to society? There's all these different areas. And I got to tell you, you can have 37 years sober. And had gotten sober the day after you drank the first time. And if you're scoring zero in all these other areas of your life, I can tell you one thing. You're miserable. You're miserable. And sobriety has nothing to and, do and with it. And some people call that a dry drunk. Like a dry drunk, exactly. A dry drunk. And I don't even know if that's, you know. A, it's at least an AA term. People use it in the rooms a yeah. lot. Because if you broaden this definition, what I think will end up happening for us over time is we can take somebody in your situation, for instance, who has fallen off the wagon, like mm-hmm. used again, mm-hmm. and say, well, we, we saw this because all the scores on everything else in your life were, were going down. You, you used to be really happy in all these areas and you get less, less happy. If you were assessing that, at some point, somebody would go, what's going on with this? Like the relationship score is going from an eight two years ago to a yeah. three. Right. You can't be married with a three score in your relationship. That's not gonna, happily. Not, yeah, happily, not happily, right? Not, and, yeah. and that's the goal. And you came from that background, so you know what impact that has yeah. on somebody growing up in a household or living around that kind of relationship. Yeah. And so- if we don't pay attention, and here's where I think biology is an important base, right? Like the car, it's the thing that you build the rest on because it's your machine that you build the psychology and the environment on. But if you don't understand what you built on top of that base, you're leaving everything up to chance, right? For those who are trying to solve this epic-sized problem that we have, political leaders, business leaders, loved ones, children, doctors, 
What, in your experience, should we be doing more or less of to get us closer to that better place? Well, I mean, there's so many answers to that. To be honest with you, I'm so happy that this conversation is being echoed around the world, all over the place. You can't pick up the news. You can't turn on the news on your phone. It's there. It's uh, This is an epidemic. And it's like you did the numbers in the beginning. We know what the numbers are. They're devastating. There's a lot of answers to that. And some of the stuff that you're talking about is important for people to hear. There is recovery programs. But there's stuff that I feel that people don't talk about. And before we get into what is the big answer, mm-hmm. you know, is uh, is it a, a government issue? Is it, you know, is it better regulations? Yes, to all this stuff, in my opinion. But I think there's other stuff that people that are looking to get sober could be looking at as well. Mm -hmm. And that is setting themselves up for success. I believe that acupuncture is something and acupressure is something that can really help addicts get off drugs. One tool, only one tool. By the way, there's a lot of evidence for that, especially around opiates. A lot of evidence around acupuncture in particular for opiate addicts. And I do acupuncture and it's really interesting being a recovered heroin addict and alcoholic and everything else addict. (laughs) Acupuncture opens up these pathways for me that I wish I felt when I was a little boy. Yeah. And now I'm on uh, herbs from the acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing transcendental meditation for about 10 years. That is another thing. So sometimes I, I think it's like, for example, if you're going to get surgery on your shoulder, and I'm only referencing that because I just had rotator cuff surgery, I went to a specialized chiropractor. He did a lot of work with magnets. We did a lot of stretching, a lot of working, aligning my body, acupuncture. I focused on diet. I focused on uh, pre physical therapy. So when I went and got it, I was as good as I was going to get to get it. You know, it's confusing because you have people that are like so bad. You're like, hey, before you go to rehab, let's do all these things to make the possibility of your recovery better. It's a bit of a weird concept, but I I think it's something I would like to see Mm. in the conversation. Other tools. Tools. First, first Other of tools. all, I love yeah. these. I love the Eastern tools, and more and more of those things are being incorporated into more traditional recovery. Like meditation and mindfulness is now a part of pretty much every recovery program you would hear about. And if it's not, and you're checking some out, do not go there, right? Because one of the things that so meditation and mindfulness allow you to do is develop awareness around some of these issues that you have been running away from for decades. Exactly. And you don't even know you need to address them until you look inside for a little bit. But you asked kind of. How do we start solving this problem? Yeah. These kinds of conversations, first of all, are the the way we start solving the problem. All right. We're fixing it right now. I love it. Feeling good. Well, here's the problem. And I talk about this in my TEDx talk. I talk about the labels that we have on. And I get you've been in recovery for a long time and you've readjusted what being an addict means in your head because you've shifted it. But for a lot of people, I'd say the vast majority of people who live in the world, addict is a really negative label. And what it means is that you're a loser who's unmotivated, weak-willed maybe even stupid. Or you um, once were a bad person. Don't maybe care. you're not trustworthy. You're bad. You're not, you lie. Once a junkie, always a junkie. Exactly. So you know, these things. Yeah. And so addict has that label on top of it. What ends up happening, unless we completely as a society change the meaning of the word addict, what happens is when you tell somebody that they're an addict, they will do everything they can to run away from that. 
And that is the reason why, in my opinion, based on the research I did when I was at UCLA doing research, 90% of people with addiction problems don't go get help. Why? Because as we stand in the current system of care, the first thing you have to do, I experienced this in the first 45 minutes in rehab, the first thing you have to be able to do is to identify as an addict. Mm. And we also all know that addicts have to quit forever. That's the other thing. The forever word is very fearful. It's tough. I mean, I'm just trying to get through this day. Sometimes it's this. The reason I wrote this book called The Abstinence Myth is there are people who are in danger. And what I mean by that is like, their substance use can kill them in the next 24 to 48 hours because of the way they're doing things. Sometimes for those people, we do need to separate them and save them by isolating them so they can't get their drugs. For everybody else, which is the majority of people who have problems with drugs and alcohol and behaviors, that quitting forever and having to label myself an addict to get the help are really big barriers. And what I'm really hoping we can start changing is let's explain to people that there are things you can do to make yourself better even if you're not ready to do any of that other stuff. Yeah. You can start using smaller tools yeah. to make your life better, to stop running away and face, you know, you talked about shoulder surgery. If you do more massage to your shoulder, then it'll damage itself less in the long term if you would have done it. So we can get into some preventative work and things like that yeah. around getting people to take better care of themselves in general. I think not enough people like Nikki come out and talk about I used to be like this, but now I do these other things and I'm better for it. And I have different role models so that we can shift the overall conversation of what an addict is, first Mm -hmm. of all, but more importantly, in my opinion, what it means to be struggling with addiction. Because most of the news stories we hear are about people who die from overdose, parents who got arrested because they neglected their kids and don't care about them, or rock stars or celebrities who screwed up, drove into a pole, got arrested, killed themselves. The vast majority of the stories we hear are negative stories about addiction. There are not enough of these stories to say, you know what? I've been there. I made it out to the other side. And here's mm-hmm. here are the tools that I use. So the people who are stuck can start looking up to somebody like Nikki and say, if he can do it, I can do it. Yeah. I feel that if we have a big picture, we, we would like to be part of the voices that steer uh, whatever current administration we have towards better laws, better regulations. We would like to see that happen. That is a big ass tugboat mm. to turn that thing around. But during that time, and without getting into politics, some of these conversations you're saying, and if they could be tangible. So when I mention meditation to people, a lot of people just gloss over <laughs> and they go, wow, Nikki's going to be sitting on a hill going, oh, yeah. it's not what's happening. I am daily trying to become a better man. I am every day looking at yesterday's behavior. I'll journal mm. at night and I'll be like, this is what happened. And hey, I kind of blew it. I sent an email and I could have just been a little bit kinder. And then I will try to implement that into my next day. Mm. All these little tiny steps, if we could get that messaging out there somehow to addicts, whether it's through recovery, through messages, through books like that you've written, through podcasts, and getting people with the louder voices, celebrities to talk about it in a way that gives addicts hope. For me, it was, you're a junkie. Mm. You got to go to rehab or you're going to die. And yes, thank God. 
but that's not everybody's story. Yeah. yeah. Everybody's story is not that. Some people's stories about marijuana. Yeah. Some people's stories about that they were beat as a kid and that they uh, need uh, sleeping pills to deal with, uh, not, you know, night stress. I mean, it goes on. How do we get people to be feel healthy mm. so that this is something that they want to embrace? It's not something that they're being beat up over. Something to run toward. Yeah. Rather than something to run away from. Yeah. Absolutely. What's the one thing you'd say to somebody who's listening that's also suffering from addiction? The one thing is that there's a way out of this. I don't care how far down you've gotten. I don't care how many relationships you've destroyed, arrests you've had, struggles you've been through. I've seen it all. Nikki, you've seen it all. It doesn't matter how hopeless you feel in this moment. There's a way out of this. When you're in the throes of whatever it is that you're addicted to, you don't think you can get out. And most of the messaging coming to you is what's wrong with you. So it's um, really hard when you're in a hole and you have people throwing dirt on Mm. top of you. You know, and so you're like, well, I think I'll just stay in the hole and do what they want me to do. And I, I'm here to say that, you know, you can get out of that hole. You don't have to uh, be engaged with the people that are in your life that are either enabling you or whatever they're doing to you. I had a kind of an eye-opening moment probably about 15 years ago. I was in therapy and I kept talking about these issues with my mom, the therapist. It's like those things that burn into your brain. I can still see the sun shining through the window. And there was like dust, like in the, you know, in the light, you know that? Yep. And uh, I kept talking about my mom and my mom this, and my mom said this, and my mom was putting me down about this. And I'm like a grown man with like a family, and I'm still struggling with this mom thing. And the therapist said, hey, Nikki, you don't have to love your mother she abandoned you and that set me free. So if there's anything I can say to people is just because people are your, you know, biological family, they may not be the best source for you to find recovery. Doesn't mean you can't love them. Uh, I still love my mom, you know, right up until she passed away, but I didn't let her have the power over me to keep making me feel bad, which I don't know could have maybe led to something might have manifested itself in anger, depression. So uh, that's one thing, you know, I like to say to people. Let me ask you both, what are you working on that you want people to know about? Uh, Right now, we have uh, just wrapped up filming and editing of the Netflix movie about Motley Crue called The Dirt. So that's a very uh, different project than the Heroin Diaries musical, which is going to open next year. A lot of people have asked me, Heroin Diaries musical, the, the, the point of it is that you can use art to spread messages. I've been doing it in songwriting, whether I want to rile people up or I want to get people to think. Mm -hmm. It's been happening forever. It happens with 
all versions of art, paintings uh, throughout history and, and self-expression. So we've put together a fantastic musical and it's just Great. beautiful. Yeah. You're going to see you know, pain and struggle and addiction and recovery and better and messaging on top of that. Some of the stuff we've talked about. So yeah. that's, Great. that's what I'm working on right now. And it's been a real passion project. It helped a lot that a lot of people thought it was a weird idea so there's still that little side inside of me, and yeah. I'm sure it's inside of you. Oh, you're going to tell me no? Okay. Let's do it. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I love it. Dr. Jaffe? So, you know, Ignited, which is the company I started just to help people with across any area. I've struggled with sex addiction issues as well, and so my wife and I do a lot of work with couples around that. You know, some of the same personality traits that led to me using drugs and meth and all those things earlier on in life are still there and I need to learn how to live with my machine just like everybody else that I talk to. So Ignited with not spelled I-G-N-T-D is the big project that I'm taking on. That involves mm-hmm. podcasts, it involves writing this book, it involves doing uh, workshops with my wife and it involves an, an addiction course. You know, one of the things that I'm trying to do for people is make rehab not the thing they have to do to get help. Shame is such a huge component of this. We need to lower the shame hurdles to get help Yes, and make it easy, not easier, easy for people to get help. I joke that like the barrier should be so low that you could fall into recovery, right? <laughs> Literally, because you shouldn't have to want to quit. You shouldn't have to climb. And you're you you're almost doing mountain. like pre-recovery. Yeah, yeah it's pre-recovery. Well, so recovery. <laughs> trade by already trade. Oh, oh, man. Man. You you the main name uh, right now. We'll split it. <laughs> <All right>. um, <laughs> and, and so on that note, I will have us run toward the end of this conversation. <laughs> Thank you both very much. I, I want to say in conclusion that the idea of these contributing elements to even what addiction is has been really valuable. That the biology, the machine, is but one of at least four components. The psychology, the environment, the spirituality, and that sense of purpose. That trying to fit in to be cool mm-hmm. is something we can redefine. Mm-hmm. You're hella cool, Nikki. Right? Well, thank you. And you redefine that, I think, for a lot of our, our listeners. And that we can be better. Yeah. And that we need more tools to be able to do that. All of our lives are worth living. Every single life is worth saving. And every single person suffering from an addiction has the ability to beat it. Some use different tools than others in that journey. But none of us is ever too broken or too scarred mm, that's to right. be able to create Amen change. To Amen. Thank we God. We should never stop fighting. Oh, no, we wouldn't be here. We no, would not be here. So not thank not you not. both for being here. Yeah, thank this you. This has been beautiful. After my conversation with Nikki and Adi, I was left with two burning questions I had to explore. First, what's a trusted resource I can send people to for more information on prevention, treatment, and help? Second, how can we better understand predisposition to addiction to better identify behaviors and patterns before they turn into addiction? My first stop was the Surgeon General's office, which turned me on to the National Opioid Action Coalition. Visit NOAC at NOAC.org to learn more about the facts and stats and to get connected to help and treatments. If you or someone you love is battling opioid misuse, there are resources to help you be the one to break down the stigma and get treatment assistance. Visit NOAC.org to learn more. My next call was to doctors Abraham Palmer and Sandra Sanchez-Roger from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine's Department of Psychiatry. They are trailblazing new research that just discovered a genetic signature for delayed discounting. What does that mean and why is it important? 
Let's have them explain. Thank you both for jumping on the line to continue our discussion about addiction, about health, and and about the science of addiction. The place I want to start is, what do we know about addictive behavior as far as, is it something we're born with? Is there a predisposition to it? Where are we with that understanding right now? We're all born with different brains, and our brains are different at birth because of the genotype that we have, because of genetics, because of what we got from our parents, and also because of important things that happen while our brain is developing, which could be trauma or infection in the mother, could be exposure to drugs by the mother. And so we go into this with different decks of cards. And one of the things that is different as a result of that is the risk that each person has to develop drug addiction. Some of us are unlikely to, some of us are very likely to. That's a a fundamental thing for understanding why we would look at the genetics of drug abuse is that we're trying to dissect some of the risk factors for drug abuse, particularly those genetic ones. I guess that we can answer that question with another question, which is um, (laughs) whether uh, we can explain the predisposition or addiction with genetics. Um, But to answer this question, then I have to give a little detour as to what do we mean by addiction, really. And I, I would like us to vision a spiral right now. And we may all start, or some people may be predisposed, for example, uh, with uh, personality traits of sensation-seeking. You may be more likely to try new things, especially if you're an adolescent. You said sensation-seeking, so that is uh, foolishly sliding down a snow-covered hill on a piece of wood, for example. Correct. Right. (laughs) Jumping (laughs) off of a bridge connected to a bungee cable. Okay. Biking downstairs, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. So um, these people may then transition to high um, drug intake or high alcohol consumption. Um, But then maybe after a while, for example, adolescence leading to adulthood, they may stop drinking highly and they may um, just uh, drink uh, socially, for example. But a minor proportion of people will transition to more compulsive drug intake, which may lead to dependence and relapse. So we're talking about a spiral of addiction that is really hard to break if you don't get good treatment. And so different genetic factors may contribute at different stages of this addiction spiral. So for example, um, it may influence uh, your decision to take the drug. It may influence how sensitive you are to the effects of the drug, uh, the severity of the withdrawal symptoms, how quickly you develop tolerance, or even your inability to quit. So there are multiple elements, genetic elements that may be influencing. But what we know is that the proportion of um, how much can genetics explain is not 100%. Biology is not deterministic. So there is a high component of the environment. So we may be born with a predisposition, uh, but the environment plays a big role. Right. And that's the theme that we keep finding in these discussions that, uh, as you so eloquently put it, biology is not uh, destiny in, in some ways, uh, but it does contribute to, to where we end up. I understand that you've partnered with 23andMe, taken advantage of people's opt-in ability to, to join in research And you've discovered some things uh, both about addictive behavior in general and dependence in particular. Mm -hmm. Can you walk me through what your study was and some of what it has shown? Sure. So 
as Sandra said, one of the things that we've emphasized in our research is to try to decompose something complicated like addiction into smaller factors where we could study the genetics of those factors and where we know or expect that understanding the genetics of those factors would improve our understanding of the genetics of drug abuse as a, as a disorder. So I want to start with the marshmallow test. Yes, and I love marshmallows. <laughs> many of your listeners love marshmallows. Many of your listeners love marshmallows. Who doesn't want to start with marshmallows? I got a campfire in my mind right now. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and it was just Halloween. So it's, <laughs> we're, we're right in the middle of the candy holidays right, right. now. So uh, you could offer a child a marshmallow and you could tell them that if they wait five minutes, they could have two marshmallows instead of the one marshmallow. And if we can put ourselves back into our childhood or imagine our own kids, it's easy to envision that that would be a real struggle, that the kid would understand that it'd be better to have two than one, but they'd love to have that one marshmallow now. And in fact, if you look at the kids offered this test, some of them will take the marshmallow, some of them will wait for the marshmallow. And that ability to delay gratification or that tendency to make impulsive decisions that have negative long-term consequences, that's a thing that we're very interested in studying, and in particular in studying the genetics of. Not because we don't believe that lots of life experiences shape those kinds of decisions, but because we believe that some of the variability in how people respond to situations like that is genetic. And so we call that delay discounting. And the logic for that term, delay discounting, is that the longer you have to wait for something, the less it's worth. Okay, so you discount something based on the delay or based on how long you have to wait for it. Right. So maybe $5 now to some people might be very similar to $10 a month from now. Okay, they want the $5, even though it's less, they want it because it's sooner. And and so can I just interject here? Because I, yeah. I get the idea, I want marshmallows now, not tomorrow. Yes. Uh, but perhaps because I don't have as much confidence that tomorrow will even happen. Yes. Right? It depends on my environment. Mm-hmm. And if I'm in a very stressful environment, an unreliable, uh, volatile environment, that discount is high. Yeah. The future <laughs> is worth a lot less. All I have is the present. Yeah. It sounds like what you're saying is... Delayed discounting is one of these factors that contributes to addiction, A, mm-hmm. and that genetics contribute to how much we discount the future. Like mm-hmm. delayed discounting is driven in part by genetics. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And that's true, by the way, in humans. You can also do delayed discounting in like pigeons and, and non-human primates, rats. And across the board, you see that there are genetic factors that predict that. Okay. So you looked into these genetics and just... Dis- trying to control or eliminate the idea of the environmental effect. I live in a volatile environment. Tomorrow's worth less. There's some genetic component. To what degree does genetics contribute to this delay discounting? Well, so it's a fraction, and you can estimate that fraction in different ways, including using twin studies uh, or using studies like the ones we've done in 23andMe that emphasize a lot of people who are only distantly related to one another. When you say twin studies, you mean studying actual Twins? Identical and non-identical twins. So this is a classic uh, study design. Yeah. Identical twins are genetically identical. Non-identical twins share about 50% because they're siblings. Right. And so if something is genetic, you expect the identical twins to be more similar to each other than the non-identical twins. And you can actually do some relatively simple algebra to come up with estimates where you get essentially the percentage of the variability in a trait that's attributable to genetics. 
from that kind of a study design. All right. So so keep taking me on, on this journey. You've explained kind of delayed discounting. What else can you share about the way the study was set up and what you found out? I, I would like um, to add something to yes. this because this is the uniqueness of our approach, what we're trying to do. And this is why we can study the general population, which is that we're studying a continuum. We're not studying... Uh, black or white, we're studying a scale of gray, mm. and we all carry certain risk. So we're all more or less impulsive. And so that's why we can carry out those studies in the general population, which can help us get a large sample size, which is much needed for genetic studies. We need not even hundreds, but thousands or hundreds of thousands of uh, participants to really find robust uh, genetic findings. And, and I, I'd like to ask a follow-up on that note because we've read uh, most of us about scientific studies before genetic studies and you have to sign up Mm -hmm. you have to go through a clinical process you opt in heavily maybe you're a college student looking for some extra cash Mm -hmm. Uh, what is the difference between that classic model of a study versus what you were able to do here so actually when i first started studying delay discounting we were doing it with that kind of college student model and paying college students to come into a lab and fill out questionnaires about a lot of things, including delay discounting. And then we would genotype those college students with their consent, of course, and try to look at the relationship between genes and behavior. And the trouble was that even really good people doing this kind of work, really very professional people, a high-quality operation, the best we could do was a few hundred a year, okay, scheduling, uh, et cetera. And as you get into genetics, uh, and as we've progressed in our understanding of genetics, it became clear that we didn't need a thousand; we needed ten thousand or a hundred thousand to really break this open. So this translates into twenty-five years of yes. research. That, sound, <laughs> that starts to sound like a very bad idea. Yeah. And so I became interested in working with Twenty-Three and Me and other groups that had large populations, populations that were already genotyped, which can be an expensive step otherwise, and who we could ask questions, including questions about delay discounting, questions about alcohol use, et cetera, because that meant uh, that we could go uh, to a whole different scale, that we could get into the hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, the sample sizes that we really needed to address these traits. And we could do that because the people are already genotyped, because they're willing to participate in this kind of research, and because we can ask them these questions over the internet. So we don't have to do this scheduling, bring them into a laboratory right. environment. Right. And that's a paradigm that many geneticists have started to use over the last few years. And it's really uh, uh, accelerated enormously the progress in the area. In fact, in less than four months, we collected information from 25,000 participants. So 25 years in four months. Correct. That's, that's right. That's, uh, it, it Do you see the advantage? <laughs> what are some of the big conclusions then? Let's, let me get back on the road of, of the study and what you found out. You're looking at delay, discounting, et cetera. But what do we know now that we didn't know before? So uh, we can't give people marshmallows over the internet, of course. <laughs> and so we asked them uh, questions about money. And I gave an example of that earlier, $5 now versus $10 in a month. Right. And if you ask a battery of questions, and there's some standardized batteries that have been developed over decades you could estimate which people are more future-oriented and which people are less future-oriented, which people have higher delay discounting and which people have lower delay discounting. And in particular, by using these questions, we were able to give everybody a score, kind of a single value. And then we could ask of lots and lots of sites where people are different, sites where they have genetic differences, 
we could ask whether or not that site accounted for any of the variability or the differences in the way people answered those questions, the score that people got. And we were able to see that, in fact, there was a lot of signal there. There were a lot of sites that collectively could explain some of that variability. And there were some particular sites that uh, were so strong in explaining that variability that we could be very confident that that was a real association. And and you're using the word sites here repeatedly. You're referring to sites in the human genome. Is that correct? That's right. Particular bases, particular letters in the DNA code where some people have one letter and some people have another letter. Some people have one nucleotide, to use a more technical term, and some people have an alternative nucleotide. So in other words, was that the genetic risk was distributed across thousands of uh, genetic variants across the genome, and each with a little effect. Each contributed very little. It it is the accumulation of Mm. all those variants. And I I like to use the metaphor of going to Ikea and uh, assembling a table. And it is all those screws, little ones, that make the table a table. Each one has small contribution, but that all together create the table. Maybe a silly metaphor, but... I think it's useful. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you're not buying tables with a million screws, but okay. <laughs> so you have a, it sounds like a clearer picture of the genetic contribution to, you know, addictive behavior. Is that a fair mm-hmm. sort of summary? That's right. And from that, we can get a few things. And yeah. one of them is we can identify particular sites, as I said uh, earlier, yeah. that we're very confident are really uh, associated with the trait. And those sites are going to be in or near particular genes. And as biologists, we can then start to try to understand how is it that that gene is changing the way the brain works, is changing the way a person or an animal would would respond when uh, posed with the choice between a smaller current reward or a larger future reward. We really want to understand as biologists exactly what's going on in the brain, which cells talking how, talking to who, and maybe even how can we intervene in that process in a way that might be useful or therapeutic. So that's one of the things that we're trying to get. The other thing we're trying to get is a kind of a genetic signature or the ability to score people based on their genotype, to score them on how impulsive do we expect them to be, even for people who we haven't directly measured impulsivity in. And that allows us to look at other samples, say samples where somebody had done a genetic study of attention deficit disorder, ADHD, and to ask whether or not this genetic signature of high impulsivity is associated with or is related to the genetic signature for, say, risk of ADHD or risk to become a smoker or risk to fail to quit smoking once you've started. Those are some of the associations we actually did see using this data so that we could really demonstrate that the delay discounting, high, high delay discounting or low delay discounting, is a risk factor for various things relevant to drug abuse and other psychiatric disorders, as you alluded to earlier. Uh, addiction has a significant impact on so many people. There's an economic impact, there's an emotional impact, there's a relationship impact, and there's also shame and stigma associated with living with these conditions and, and having these behaviors. Absolutely. So how do you bridge that experience, that pain and that cost with what you're starting to get clarity on with these new studies about the genetic factors that contribute to some of these behaviors? This is a great question because we are currently facing an opioid crisis, for instance, in in the U.S. and many people dying as a result. 
Um, substance use disorders are underdiagnosed. Um, we're also facing in research that it is an area that is highly underfunded as well. So stigma plays a big role. There seems to be a negative label associated with substance use disorders. And um, it is interesting because no one would tell you, oh, you can choose to have um, a heart attack. Right? <laughs> right, would be very silly to say to someone, but yet it seems that for substance use disorders, someone could say you could choose uh, to not take drugs, mm. right? And and I'd like to quote a sentence um, that Nikki uh, mentioned that he was trying to fill a hole which uh, wasn't his fault. So you could say that there is a predisposition, if you will, a genetic predisposition, but that it was uh, his responsibility. And so what I'm trying to get to is that there is a predisposition, um, and this is what our research shows, that there is a biological route to these conditions, but that the effect of the environment is very powerful. So to contradict another classic sentence of a junkie will always be a junkie, that's certainly not true. And uh, we can do lots uh, to change the environment and to develop better treatments. And this is what we're trying to do with research. We're trying to reduce the stigma by showing that there is a biological contribution and that perhaps one day, if we learn and know enough about the biology, we can develop better treatments. So with more science, we have a better explanation. We will hopefully tend to blame people less, but also develop new ways out of addiction because of our new insight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to people that are working in the area of the biology of addiction, the idea of blaming the uh, the patients is, is not something we even talk about anymore uh, because nobody thinks that way mm. uh, in, in the medical community and the research community. But I think you're exactly right that by doing this kind of research, we come up with really concrete examples that maybe some of your listeners and other people can relate to that demonstrate how not everybody's dealt the same deck of cards, how not everybody goes into these situations with the same strengths and weaknesses. And therefore, some people are very vulnerable to these substances, which are prevalent in our society. Uh, And that that shouldn't be seen as a personal weakness. That shouldn't be seen as something that they are uh, blamed for. Uh, That should be seen instead as, as a vulnerability that they have, that we all as a society need to help them to avoid, ideally, and if, uh, if avoidance fails, then to deal with and recover from. As Sandra alluded to, one of, the, one of our hopes personally is that this biological understanding might lead to novel treatments, might lead to new ways that we could intervene so that somebody who's trying to remain abstinent or is trying to decrease or, or completely stop drug use would be able to do that more easily because we would actually be able to say, look, we're going to do something that's going to change the biology of your brain in a positive way, in a way that makes these drugs less tempting or that uh, interrupts this kind of compulsive tendency uh, to seek and use the drugs. In in fact, we should be treating mental illnesses in the same way that we're treating medical or physical conditions. Yeah. And and as you said, you know, no one chooses to have a heart attack. And I think that's just such a powerful metaphor. We don't choose to break our bones. You know, we have accidents, but Mm -hmm. to see these in a less judgmental scale and more of this is part of what it is to be a life form. And this is part of what yeah. it is to be human uh, can strip away some of the uh, factors that inhibit us from from approaching each other with compassion and with actual answers uh, such as stigma. I agree. And also, you could say that it's a mistake for somebody who to have taken the drugs in the first place. And it's a mistake for somebody to have allowed themselves to progress down a road towards addiction. 
But we've all made mistakes. Yeah. And indeed, the people having the heart attacks may not have kept up with the kind of diet and exercise advice that they've been given. People uh, who've made mistakes don't necessarily need to be punished by our society for those mistakes. We should instead be looking at that and saying, here's a person seeking recovery, acknowledging that they've made mistakes, and now they need help. And now they need our help, and yeah. they need help of, of uh, it, you know, among others, the research community. And that's the way we approach these problems. I was reading your study, and you use this phrase, citizen scientists, mm -hmm. to kind of refer to the people who opted into this study. And you've just been talking about helping. So, so can you explain the concept of the citizen scientist and how folks listening now can be helpful to answering these questions better in order to treat one another better? Yeah, well, 23andMe is one platform, not the only platform, in which citizen scientists, that is people that want to help with research, can, from their living room, from their bedroom, can get involved by answering questions that various researchers have decided are important to pose to them. And they are not compensated for this. They're doing this because they are interested in the research. They're interested in helping out. They're interested in making the fact that they've already been uh, studied genetically, genotyped. They're interested in making that available. And uh, uh, that is the critical thing that this study depends on. Mm -hmm. And indeed, other, other studies that we've done that have involved cohorts, including but not limited to 23andMe, all of them have to do with the, uh, these public efforts that have reached out to people without compensation to participate in studies where they, frankly, ask a lot of questions, where they take time that they could have spent on anything, and they spend it trying to advance research. And we are extremely grateful, in fact, uh, to all those people that donated their data for research. And we're hoping in a way that um, this conversation today will inspire more people to participate in genetic studies in the future. We've been called in the past to donate blood, right, to help with a blood drive, to donate That's food, right. mm -hmm. and now <laughs> donate spit, you know, donate, mm -hmm. donate yeah. some of your, your genome to help scientists like you two and, and those you work with help us. So I, I, I love that idea of the citizen scientist and that there are ways that all of us can uh, help you help us. One of the hopes is that we can get a handle on the genetic risk for these disorders, maybe because you'd want to make predictions for individual people. You're particularly susceptible to these disorders. You should be particularly cautious. Although I want to say that right now, people already can work with family history. They already know what their family history is in most cases, exceptions being people who are adopted, for example. And that family history is presently a more powerful than anything mm. we can do with genetics. Maybe that'll change one day as we get larger sample sizes. But right now, people who know that their families struggled with alcohol and drug abuse should assume that they're at higher than normal risk for alcohol and drug abuse. And they may want to make decisions to avoid uh, using those drugs altogether or uh, be okay. very careful about moderating. And then the other critical thing that all of the citizen science can bring to bear is, first of all, it can make it much less expensive to do this research. Whereas it's very expensive to have clinicians diagnose people with alcohol use disorder and to genotype those people or to go out and to try to find people who have particular, sometimes rare disorders. Alcoholism is common, but some genetic disorders are rare. To find those people and then genotype them is expensive and slow. 
So one of the revolutions of this approach uh, is that we can start to do things faster, mm. better, and cheaper. And again, we're thankful for all those participants, and we hope that more and more people will allow us to do um, genetic studies like the ones that we did and others are doing um, in the future. Completely agree about the, the gratitude yeah. to the participants. You asked about our vision sort of for the future, and I was talking about a little bit about prevention, because that's part of it. And then I, I want to also emphasize that we're really very interested in treatment and that if we can gain a better understanding of what it is about a brain that's changed in the addictive state, what is an addicted brain, then we'll have a better understanding of how we can normalize that. And in particular, the, the really problematic thing about addiction is that people have this increased lifetime risk to return to drug use, to relapse. Those are the people that really need help, and those are the people that we would ideally like to be able to offer increasingly effective pharmacological treatments so that they would go to their doctor, they'd say, this is a thing, this is the addiction, I'm trying to recover from this now, and we could give them something that would mm. reduce the craving, that would make it easier for them to stay away from that, that, that very high risk of, of relapse. Uh, and that's going to require understanding what addiction is, what is unique about the brain that makes it more or less susceptible for addiction, what changes about the brain in that state of addiction. And that's something that many, many people are working on. So uh, you know, I was just at a scientific conference that had literally thousands of people working on different aspects of this problem. So very active area of research. Genetics is just one component of that research. But it's one area that allows us to generate new leads, to kind of identify new targets, new molecules, new genes, maybe new pathways in the brain that hadn't previously been studied uh, or understood and, and to bring into focus their role wow. in these problems. Okay, so uh, I, you're awesome, both of you. Dr. Abraham Palmer, Dr. Sandra Sanchez-Royji, thank you so much for generating new leads, for sharing your investigation with us, you science detectives, <laughs> on uh, what we can learn more of through genetics about how to treat each other better and how to treat uh, those suffering from and experiencing addictive use disorder, alcoholism, and associated constellations uh, of symptoms. Thank you so much. All right. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want to hear more surprising stories about how we're all related, search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com. Or sign up for my text messages. Just hit me up at 202-902-7949. Put hashtag spit podcast in your message so I know where you came from. 